0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center on a bright and sunny day in April. This is part two of my talk on mindfulness meditation. Part two are the questions and answers from that mindfulness meditation presentation. What I found in listening to this was the fact that a lot of people who listened to the presentation had more questions about self and soul. Does self or soul really exist? Are we that thing? Or is it simply a process and never an event? So what you're about to hear are the questions and answers portion of the Mindfulness Meditation presentation given at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California does anybody have any questions or comments it was it's not the problem of us having a self in the sense of a self being present, but the problem is is we relate to the self as being who we are. So it's okay for a Buddhist to have a soul, actually, and it's okay for a Buddhist to have a self, actually, as long as they say, that's not who I truly am. That's not my essence. That's not the quality of my life. Now, the ethical problem for the Buddha was this. The soul, as I've read, was about the size of your thumb. and looked just like you. And they believed in reincarnation, so that little soul that looked just like you kept being reincarnated into new vessels, new vehicles, over and over and over again. Until you finally learned all the lessons you needed to learn, and then you went back to the great soul, the mothership, and that little piece, now that had been lost and separate, created, created union again with the great ship. And that's a very pleasant way of looking at it. And a lot of people look at their life as a test. (laughs) You are being tested today. As my car wouldn't start, I was being tested. But is that why I'm on earth? To figure out those tests? Well, probably not. Now, the ethical problem, according to the Buddha, is this. That if, in fact, you had a soul that was reincarnated many, many times, thousands of times, any one lifetime didn't really matter that much. That you always had many more lifetimes to make up for your indiscretions or your unskillfulness in this lifetime. And he saw that as a lack of taking responsibility in this life. He also saw that if somebody believed they didn't have a soul, if they believed they didn't have a self or an essence, that they were nihilistic and that they believed there wasn't any reason to have an ethical life or moral life, because when you died, you simply fed the trees. So what's the point of being good or bad? You could do anything you want. So the Buddha, rather than saying there was a soul or there wasn't a soul, sort of took the middle path and said, you are not the soul. He took the middle path and said, you are not the self. Does that help?
1: It does. Yeah. In Boston, was that the soul was kind of like a hard drive. We didn't have that term, of course, in the 50s and 60s, wherein uh, everything that one did uh, negatively was recorded on that soul. And as you point out, when you were in a position to be judged, it went up to, quote, heaven, and it was made part of the whole big soul, as you outlined. Yeah. And then your, your essence was transmitted up there, and then you were assessed vetted in that fashion. The soul was your kind of top of rasa or hard drive moment there. And that's how you would judge. Now, I was trying to see how Brutal would look at Indian Brahmin Roman souls, but I guess the nuns, the nuns and the priests certainly had their own take
0: on that. Well, the Christians surely have their own take on that. Now, Are you familiar with what I'm saying? I mean, that, is that You know, when I ask Christians and Catholics in particular what a soul is, they don't give a very good explanation. When I say, well, what is your soul? Does it have, you know, does it weigh anything? How much does it weigh? What does it look like? Can you smell it or taste it? Can you touch it? it Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems to be more than just something. Um, But for us, as a Buddhist, what's transmigrates is our karmic energy. So we do have something from this lifetime going to the next time, lifetime, and we do have some kind of moral equivalent going from this lifetime to the next lifetime. We have unskillful karma being reborn, or we have skillful karma being reborn. Now that skillful and unskillful is not determined by a divine being, but by suffering, more suffering, and less suffering. and. When that karma merges with the sperm and the egg, then Buddhists say that a new life occurs. Uh, And so for us, in order to stop being reborn, we need to end our karma. We cannot end our parents having sex, but we can end our karma. I like that idea. People ask me, why am I here? I'm here because my parents had sex and I had karma. My ultimate goal is to end my karma. And when we end our karma in this lifetime, it is called Nirvana. So not only do we end our suffering, but we end all future rebirths because there's nothing left to be reborn. But that karmic energy does not go to the mothership, does not go to the big karma in the sky. It simply ceases to exist, the stream, the flow. We'll never have to die. We'll never have to get sick. How cool is that? So nirvana, nirvana, the reason why we could exist if we were enlightened, is a very special phenomena, I suppose. Not to be understood um, psychologically, but simply to be experienced. And so when the Buddha achieved his nirvana, it ended all future rebirths and it ended his suffering. And he taught for 45 years. He died at the age of 80. And it wasn't until a couple hundred years later that they finally resurrected him again. Because the Buddhists didn't want a good guy to go away. So they said, oh no, he's not really gone. He's... There's three kinds of Buddha. There's the Buddha of the essence, and there's the Buddha of the earth, and there's the Buddha of this, and it's almost like the Trinity kind of thing. And, I, and me being more of an early Buddhist than a later Buddhist, I was really disappointed that the humans had to bring back the Buddha and put him back in heaven, because I liked the idea that he finally ended his rebirths. And though heaven is a great place to be, and I'm sure none of us would want to leave, It's not the ultimate goal for a Buddhist. And speaking of heaven, I was on TV a couple days ago. I was on the History Channel. Now, I didn't see it. I didn't even know I was on until I got some emails and a phone call saying, good job. (laughs) And I'm going, what the heck are they talking about? And it was something that I had been interviewed uh, during the summer, the hottest day of the summer. It was. I can remember the interview well. I just. It was just, oh, it the heat was just smothering me. And I had three robes on, and I had the makeup, and we couldn't have a fan on because the mic would pick up the fan. We couldn't have the doors open because the sounds from outside would be picked up by the mic. And, the, you know, they got the bright light, and there's a camera going. And what it was, there was an interview about uh, heaven. And they had contacted a few Buddhist temples and monasteries to to have monks... Or nuns talk about heaven, and none of them really wanted to do that. And then they called me, and I said, I'm more than happy to talk about heaven. And so uh, it, it was in a History Channel show called Heaven Beyond the Grave. <laughs> I know, isn't that great? Sounds like a Twilight Zone.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess, I guess, yeah. So, So you can... I've been told. I'm not sure. But uh, so if you if you get the chance, if it's ever on again, and, and you just see heaven beyond the grave, I have like three minutes of interviews. And I, I was told I wasn't sweating, so the makeup worked. So it was fine.
1: It seems to me that the whole concept of the self is a survival mechanism for the organism. Mm-hmm. Trying to end suffering and all, there's days in which sometimes I just feel almost like a sense of despair, like, oh I just screwed that up. You know, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you become more aware, and with that awareness becomes maybe more responsibility. And, and, but sometimes it's just really hard. You mm-hmm. know that you're you're just not as you're aware of the challenge, but you're not always
0: up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's definitely a work of Yeah, and and I I think you might have gone a little far in saying that if we didn't have a self, we would just, you know, not do anything. Because there was a point in our evolution as humans where we didn't have this unique human self. And then for some reason, whether it be through man or woman, we woke up. And what would be so cool, if we could figure out who the first person was that became self-aware. And what happened? Was it... Uh, genetics, was it an experience they had, where they just sort of like were in this darkness, like the dogs and the cats are, and the fish and the birds, you know, and then they became self-aware, and they were forever separate from the world around them. And if you look at a lot of the creation stories in, in old religions... There's always this light and dark thing happening, you know and and so they talk about creation, but for me it 's always not been the creation of the world it 's been the creation of our awareness of the world. Now that we have this sense of separate self, now that we 're able to have language and and count numbers and use computers, we um, have a feeling of past and future, we have a feeling of control, we have a feeling of being good at it or not so good at it. And if we were to lose all that, we, would, you know, uh, we wouldn't be human in the same sense that we are now. We'd be less than human. We need somebody to help us. Because we've sort of lost that intuitive part. It's atrophied after lack of use of how to live without a self. Now the self, I find, is our best problem solver. It doesn't always come up with the right answers, but it really likes to work on problems. And this past Wednesday, we were doing some meditation and there was this guy that starts to, has started coming in the last few months and he, and he works at an ISP, an Internet Service Provider. And they were having some problems with one of the software they were using. And so during his meditation, all he thought about was the software. And and he seemed to almost figure it out and he had his Blackberry, so after meditation he called someone and you know had to talk about the software, but the whole time... He was uh, problem-solving. And, and that's the deal. You know, When you do certain forms of meditation, what you want to have is no problems. So you find a pleasant space, you find a quiet space, you burn some incense. It might be uh, darkly lit, if lit at all. And, and it's sort of like, okay, it's okay not to problem-solve for a few moments. Now let's see what the mind does. And the mind, if you are mindful or concentrated, has a um, a vast array a, a vast array of things it can do. It seems to me, you know, it's just, just not problem solve. But most of the time, if you were back in the 1800s or 1700s or 1600s, we're talking survival. You know, we, you know, we weren't literate, perhaps, didn't have much, you know, fun many fun things to do. Might have played a lute or something. And the rest of the time, you're trying to scrounge up enough food and uh, shelter and clothing and pay your taxes so the king won't kill you. And, you know, speaking of taxes. And there you go. You know, now we have, we find some of us have a lot of extra time. And we can read and uh, go online and take vacations and reflect and contemplate on the world at large. But getting back to what you said, Buddhism, I think, has a realistic approach to the world. Buddhism says you can't fix the world. It's flawed. It's only flawed though because of the way we perceive it. It's actually perfect. It's just the way it's supposed to be. We wish it could be different. We wish we didn't have nuclear weapons, perhaps. We wish fewer people would have motorcycles or, pardon me, SUVs and more people would have motorcycles. We could use less gas. We wish things would be different than they are. And yet, when we try to change the system, we always fail. Because the system is flawed. There's no perfect human system out there, whether it be government or whatever. But the Buddha said, we can become perfect on the inside. We can do that in one lifetime, or seven lifetimes, or 700 lifetimes. We do have the ability to find perfection on the inside. And when we finally become perfect, and look at the world around us, it too is perfect.
1: From bringing that back on a personal level, there's a point I think. I mean, if you take the approach that the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be right now, mm-hmm. well, then what would make you not strive then to become a monk and to devote yourself more to spending time with the Dharma? And all? If everything is perfect right now. Mm-hmm. It's
0: to go towards something also. -hmm. um, That's because I'm not enlightened. It's also because people are suffering. So when I go out to Irvine, it's not because I like going to Irvine. If you've ever been in the 405, going to Irvine, it sucks. Even in the carpool lane, it's difficult. It's hours to get out there. But people are suffering. I want the world to be different than it is because fewer people will have to suffer. But if I can't change the world, then my job is to sort of change the people in the world. And when I look at what the Buddha did, he didn't change the system. He changed the kings or the people in charge of the system. And then the system changed. He went at fixing the world one person at a time. So... We don't change the world because we want it to be better. We change the world because we want fewer people to suffer. And that includes ourselves. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say that to people, they don't necessarily think that's... Well, what does that mean? You're You're not concerned about the world, you're just concerned about the people suffering. Yeah, that's the whole deal. From a Buddhist perspective. So is there any perfect kind of solution to... You know, the oil crisis? I don't think so. We're just going to use other stuff. You know? Maybe, you know, there's a million ways to look at it. But can we affect people? Can we have them suffer less? So when Buddhists march for peace, you know, yeah, we want peace because people will suffer less with peace in the world rather than war. And we want enough food for people to eat because they'll suffer less, they won't be hungry. And we want people not to be homeless but to be in homes or shelters so they'll suffer less. And sometimes we can change the people, give them an education, give them a chance at a job, employment, so they can somebody's at the door. So they can suffer less. Sometimes we can change the system and have more welfare. Or we can have, you know, better insurance for people, or give them discounts on their medication, so they can suffer less. So when I look at the world and I look at myself, I I look at it that way. What can I do to suffer less today? And if I don't yell at people because I dislike them, I suffer less. And they suffer less too. If I keep thinking things should be different than they are, I suffer more. So how can I look at people who are incompetent according to me and accept them exactly the way they are? without needing them to be more competent or skillful. I might like them to be, because I would suffer less, but can I just allow them to be who they need to be? Very difficult, you know? So it's sort of that thing. I hope I was able to yeah. you know, verbalize. You just have to change your, your focus. Um, it's not like we're trying to make things better, but we're trying, because better there is no better. There is no better, but there is no worse as well. But there is the opportunity to have less suffering. Yes. Exactly. That's the deal. And most people don't go there. Most people look at it as outside is the problem. You know? So Buddhism is really a unique approach to living a life and to living in community. You know? With, yeah. You lost.
2: Okay. Because I can, you know, I, I I can have opinions about quality of objects. It lasts longer. It tastes better. It is more durable or less durable. But I can't translate that to beings. And I wonder if you are challenging us to do that. Is there? Do you believe that there's a quality of quality in living beings, mm-hmm. and not just in objects? I understand that you were saying, you know, the the quality is in the is in the Gestalt, the whole thing together, rather than the pieces. Well,
0: that's that's debatable, but do you think that there is quality of individuals? I don't think it exists independently, and I don't think we can find where it exists. Uh, You know, when you say you have, you know, uh, a Louis Vuitton handbag quality. Oh, it's so cool. But where does that quality exist? I mean, in what part? Is is there an essence to that quality? That's really the question. Is there an essence to the quality? Is there an essence to us? And the Buddha would say, no, absolutely not. We have something that appears to be self. We have something that appears to be essence or quality. But it is a process, not an event. And if we look for something independent and unconditional, we will always come up empty-handed. So it's sort of that thing. Like, I have a sense of self, and it's very big sometimes. And and people expect me to be a certain way and do it a certain way, and and I like doing it a certain way and being a certain way. and Yeah, but what is that thing? Can I really just define it and say, there it is, this is it, this is... And, and no matter how hard I try, I can't find it. So I realize there's a process that occurs in spite of me, sometimes or because of me other times, but when I try to pinpoint it, I can't find it. Now, one of the... I was reading a book, and back in the, I guess, early 1900s, they were trying to find the soul, and they had just invented the X-ray machine. And so they were X-raying a lot of people, and they were taking radium and you know, drinking it, and they would just glow and stuff, and people were dying. And, they, and then for a while they said, well, the soul really is like behind the pituitary gland, it's right there. It's about this big. And it weighs this much because when somebody dies, we, we weighed them before they died and after they died. And that's the difference in their weight. So that must be the weight of the soul. So there seems to be a real urgency on the part of human beings to, you know, objectify things, to make it stand apart, to make it exist. That the idea of process is difficult. Okay. So now, quality.
2: I'm going to have left because it's all downhill from here. Yeah. Um, You know, you talked about Ken Wilber, and I went to look for some of his things. I'm reading his developmental psychology right now, which talks about how all of the different psychologies have the same progression and development of individuals. And um, if you believe in that, and if you believe in enlightenment, and if you believe that we are getting uh, further developed, then, then just because you're getting sensory um, regression as you get older, it doesn't mean that things are getting worse. You know, and I can think of lots of examples of that. You know, if I do a medical study on 18 to 20 year olds, you take their blood, they fall over. It's a traumatic experience. You take blood from someone who's 60s. You know, it's no big deal. They have a different threshold for pain and and depreciation. If I talk to my 80 year old mother, you know on one hand she'll say getting old is a crock imagine you've got Vaseline on your glasses and you've got pebbles in your shoes and you know rubber gloves on but on the other hand I've never been as happy because I've never been as free of all of the constraints that we think are so important until we get more enlightened
1: so yeah.
2: why this view that getting older is you know getting worse and worse if enlightenment is that's
0: more more yeah, a really a good question. I think I think the deal is, uh, uh, first part would be that uh, we don't want to look at the future or the past as a way of being better or worse. You know, like I used to be really good in the past, and I see the future as being not so good, or vice versa. That we really want to focus all our attention, if it's possible, right now. On what's happening today in this very moment. So it's, I guess it's more of a way to come to a place of acceptance with the way things are, rather than evaluating or judging uh, what they're going to be or could have been. And, and so she was, you know, having a pretty good day yesterday when I talked to her, but the feeling I had is she had been reflecting on her birthday And she had been, you know, planning for the future in some way and realized she had less future to plan for. And by simply saying, well, today is the best day you're ever going to have, I think it sort of brings you back to your day, which is where we always live. Now, tomorrow, okay, will be another day, and it actually might be better in relationship to today. You know, fewer things went wrong, and you had a better lunch, and da-da-da-da. So, yeah, today is like, Okay, cool. So it's really just sort of a psychological, I think, technique, more than an external reality, of how can I be comfortable with what's happening today and not need it to be different, you know, not need to be 25 again, or not fear being 75, that kind of thing. And it works, it seems to work. So as the Buddhist monks and nuns get together and talk amongst themselves, we throw things like that back and forth to remind each other that that's what the Buddha talked about. Whether psychology or medical science agrees with us or not, how can we, whether we have no money or a lot of money, look at today as being the best day we're ever gonna have. And I guess, in a way, you know, uh, just the simple fact that we all woke up today is a good start. You know? <laughs> so, I, so I hope that clarified it. It's not like an ultimate reality. It's more like a, a technique.
2: Uh-huh. And then, if the absence of suffering is an absolute goal, doesn't growth always imply suffering? Isn't it always painful to grow?
0: It has been for me.
2: So do
0: you avoid growth so that you optimize suffering? No, no. And again, I'll, I'll go back to what Esmeralda said, the, the seventh grader. I uh, gave a talk in her class years ago in Glendale. And at the end of my talk, she said, Kusla, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. So... Okay, that's good. Okay. Yeah. She was very wise.
2: yeah. Uh, going to the future
1: uh, you mentioned one of the last things you said if we're mindful about what we say and what we do and what we think and then you mentioned something about the future that I didn't quite understand something in the
0: future if we do all that now Mm. how does that affect the future? okay I'm not sure what I said but I'll I'll tell you how it affects the future Um, if you needed to go to the store today and you would sit down and write a list out of the things you thought you needed because when you got there, sometimes you forgot one or two items. I know I always do. And so in this very wonderful present moment we live in, you'd be writing a list, and then you'd be taking the list with you in the car in this very wonderful present moment, and then you'd be looking at the list in the supermarket in this wonderful present moment, and then you'd be purchasing the items in this wonderful present moment, and you'd be bringing them back in this wonderful present moment. But all the time, <clears throat> you needed to be mindful of everything you were saying, doing, and speaking in the present moment. So pretty much, the future takes care of itself if we're mindful of the present moment. Now they say, "Well, how am I going to, you know, uh, uh, how am I going to uh, plan for the future?" Well, all the planning we do is done right now. And and the planning is flawed because we don't know all the things that might occur. We never have 100% information, all the information necessary. But we have insurance, you know, we have maybe a savings account, a couple charge cards, and we sort of plan, well, if this goes wrong or that goes wrong, then I have that as a contingency. But again, it's all done right now. And when those things do go wrong, they go wrong right now. So in a very real way, there is no past or future, if we're mindful. There's only the present moment. Getting ready for the present moment, which we will call the future, because it's not the present moment yet. <laughs> and English and speech just really gets in the way of a present moment, unchanging you know, quality that uh, nirvana might be. Because our speech is really past and future, and all our stories are past and future. And our life is past and future. And if you take our past and future away and just have, have a present moment, we, we don't have much of a story, do we? It's pretty much what we're doing right now.
1: Is the James Joyce, just stream of
0: consciousness? It's the.
1: Just stream of consciousness. Would the story would be like James Joyce. Uh, and yeah. Just, it would just run on um, without any sense of perception from the outsider that they're. We
0: have a pastor, you know, the character has a pastor, future. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, yeah. When you get into like the haikus, the 17-syllable poems, you know, Japanese, then it's like present moment experience. It's like, this is what it's all about. The frog jumped in the pond. Splash. Okay. Well, not a whole lot of past and future in that, is there? So those are sort of like present moment. And J- James Joyce, I guess, was more, I've tried to read him, I've failed miserably. Uh, But uh, more existentialist, I suppose, you know, in that stream of consciousness. But our life, you know, pretty much is just the stories we have, you know. And somebody said the other day, you've got a really interesting life, Kusla. And I thought to myself, well, I've got some good stories, yeah, you know. (laughs) But really, what is my life? It's just, you know, seeing and hearing and tasting and smelling and touching and thinking. That's my life. All happening right now and in mindfulness meditation that technique is to get us back to those sensory experiences of our life to sort of let go for a while past and future to see what our life is built on and it's built on our sense doors and the miracle of self that weaves the tail from that information chooses bits and pieces very carefully can't use all the information because we'd have an information overload and just, you know, sort of pass out. But it very carefully picks the things that might be important right now, and and just discards the things that maybe aren't very useful right now. It's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating process to be a human being. But it never turns it into an event. We can't ever claim it as our own. In the same way, we can't ever claim the river as our own. You know. Yeah.
1: but in some ways our whole goal is to is to go full circle and become unaware of it no well, well, I
0: mean, I'll clarify that for you but I'll have to say no
1: but I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that you want to if by having a self it seems like through meditation you want to get rid of the idea it would seem
0: like that but it's not and Ken Wilber talks about it it's the pre-trans Fallacy, And in that paper he wrote on the pre-trans fallacy, he talked about initially it seems like we want to go back to the beginning, that sort of primordial ignorance. Well, we can't, because we can't forget everything. It's always there. So what we need to do is transcend it. So it's a very different kind kind of innocence, you see. The, The infant needs constant care. But the enlightened person... Look at the Buddha, he was very active and self-proficient, you know. So we need to transcend the ego, not destroy it. We need to change it from a master into a tool. And it's possible, according to the texts. Now, when you talk about the evolution, as I talked about the evolution, well, in child psychology... Each one of us, if we ever watch children long enough, can see the beginning of ego, beginning of self, that self-awareness. So I guess in some way, we're all a microcosm of the macrocosm. We can see the evolution of humankind in each one of us. And there is that moment, that switch, you know, and it's so cool. I don't know exactly when it is or what happens, but there's this sense of self-awareness. And and from what I've read, which is uh, not very much, that at at one point, you know, mom and the kid are exact same thing, you know, there's just the universe, and then all of a sudden, mom becomes separate, you know, no longer connected to mom in that, you know, sort of primordial way, and then all of a sudden, they realize they have a hand, <laughs> you know, they, wow, look at that, whose is that? <laughs> you know. And that slow awareness of themselves, it's just fascinating. But I wonder when it happens. See, that's the, who, who was the first one? Or was there a first one? You know, Who knows? But that's what's fascinating to me, that we are given that gift. That's the, the gift of being human, and that self-awareness. But the moment that occurs, then we are forever separate from the world around us. And there's this sort of existential fear, that's way in the background, you know, that most of us aren't even aware of, that being separate. And then eventually, through meditation practice and discipline, we reconnect in a very cool way to the world again. We become interconnected and interdependent again, but still have the ability to be separate. We have unity and diversity, but not oneness. So the, the child, the newborn, is one with everything. And the adult who achieves enlightenment has created unity with everything. A much different way of doing it. So that, Ken Wilber, pre-trans fallacy, if you're curious about that. that was good. With us a discussion
2: about
0: yes. the need for ego. Yes. That we can't discard it. Because then we end up like Ronald Reagan. And in the sense that, you know, Alzheimer's takes that away from you. And you go back in a primordial way to the oneness and you become uh, less functional or not functional at all. So we don't want that. We want to have clarity. We want to have our bag of tools with us. We want to be able to decipher and discriminate, but always realizing that that's not really who we are. And so we keep looking. What was our original face before we were born? We keep looking and looking and looking and keep coming up empty and empty and empty. And for Buddhists, that's okay. That means we're on the right track. Because as soon as we find something, that's not us. Okay, we have to let that go now too. And that's traditionally a, a, an Indian technique in philosophy. It's not what are you, it's what aren't you. You're not this, you're not that, you're not this, you're not that. And what's left over is what you really are. But you can't name it because then you're not that. So it's an interesting place. It's an interesting tension we need to keep. you know, We keep looking and looking and naming and naming and realizing that's not it then at some point we stop looking and stop naming naming and feel very comfortable with not being who we think we are. Well, that's it. That was the questions and answers portion of my talk on mindfulness meditation given at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like more information on True Yoga, you can find them at www.trueyoga.com. For more information on me, my website is kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A.info. And my email is kusala at urbandharma.org. Always happy to hear from you, and I'll get back to you just as soon as I can. So until next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.